Unitarian Universalism has a wonderful history. We are indeed an historic faith grounded in story upon story upon story. Oftentimes it does feel like we hide our history, though lately I've noticed a great deal of reclaiming our past, documenting it, and telling the stories. Whether it's this congregation or our national association in Boston, they are stories worth telling. Our history is at once tragic, courageous, frightful, chaotic, serendipitous, and often bizarre. Now here's my new favorite story about Unitarian Universalism from our Universalist ancestors. Many of you have no doubt heard me preach about John Murray, the Universalist preacher whose ship ran ashore in New Jersey, only for him to find an empty church waiting for him to be the preacher and to preach the gospel of universal salvation, the idea that there is no damnation, only redemption. It's a great story, and if you haven't heard it, I'd happily tell you it sometime. But John Murray became so well known for his life and his passion for universalism that people started naming their children after him. One such child was John Murray Spear, who was born in 1804, 11 years before John Murray died. Now, you know you're famous when people name their children after you before you've died. John Murray Spear was born in Boston and was baptized with his brother, Charles, by John Murray himself at the First Universalist Church. Later on and after the death of John Murray, his family became members of Second Universalist, whose pastor was another famous, famous Universalist, Hosea Ballou. When Spear came of age, he became a shoemaker's apprentice, but quickly discovered he would rather study ministry. So he entered theological school in Roxbury, Massachusetts, and quickly became a prominent preacher and abolitionist. He first served in Hyannis, which is right on the Cape, but assisted his brother, also a universalist preacher, at his congregation in Brewster. Spear didn't stay in, stay in congregational ministry long, though he stayed in the area and would preach at the local churches. Spear felt called, however, to help organize one of the first anti-slavery conventions for the Universalists. Working with Frederick Douglass, Spear would preach and teach all throughout New England against slavery, often at the risk of losing his life. In 1844, while preaching against slavery, Spear was attacked by an angry mob, and he nearly died after sustaining severe head trauma. But that didn't stop him. He continued to organize the Boston Underground Railroad, and in the 1850s, he became one of the very first parole officers in the United States. Now, I didn't know this, but he's credited with partially inventing the job, parole officer. You can tuck that in the back of your mind, and trivia night, you'll, you got it. His work in abolition became so well known that it was often said of him by his colleagues, and I quote, Although the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but spiritual, we do not object at all to the use of the spear. <laughs> Referring, of course, to John Murray's spear. Now, I feel like we could end the story of spear here and walk away content. This man was fascinating. He embodied that universalist spirit, which I will add was a point of contention between the Unitarians and the Universalists at that time. 
Spear and the universalist fathers and mothers that influenced him preached a universalism that said humanity was saved no matter what. But during this time period, the Unitarians believed it was human effort alone, the building up of our character that saved us. It wasn't always harmony, but here we are now. The Unitarians and the Universalists merged together. That aside, Spear was truly remarkable. He was tireless in his ambition. He was a true believer in the cause of universalism. And despite all of this, this is where his story takes a bizarre turn. In 1852, in part because of his daughter Sophronia and her interest in the growing spiritualist movement, Spear started heeding messages from what he believed to be the spirit world. He adopted a practice of faith healing, which he called magnetic healing, which involved the shifting of magnetic energy by the laying on of hands. And later on that year, he said he entered an extended trance and wrote a book as a result, believed to be the messages of John Murray, the man who baptized him from the afterlife. Not long after, Spear declared himself the chosen agent, the chosen medium for the entire planet. That's quite a promotion. (laughs) He also claimed to speak for the spirits of Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Rush, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence and also a Universalist. Spear declared the formation of a Congress of Spirits and used the supposed messages from Murray, Jefferson, Franklin, and Rush to guide his ministry work. Spears' friends obviously thought he was having a psychotic break. And soon enough, he was removed from fellowship with the Universalists due to his eccentricities and what they thought were his delusions. Not to be deterred, Spear joined a spiritualist religious organization and pressed on in his newfound vigor. Soon enough, he began a commune in Lynn, Massachusetts, with the goal of bringing about new technology from the spiritual world. The purpose of this group was to build one machine in particular, what Spear called the new motive power, which was, believe it or not, to become a mechanical messiah who would bring about utopia worldwide. Cobbling together magnets, copper, zinc, and part of a dining room table A machine with a robotic appearance slowly came to be. After about nine months of building, Spear and an unidentified woman who was part of the community simulated the ritual birthing of this mechanized Messiah because the spirit world told them that it would come to life and save the world. Now, we know how this story ends (laughs) because in 2019, we don't have a mechanized Messiah. The machine did not come to life There was no Messiah. It was dismantled shortly after. Spear would go on to advocate free love, divorce his wife of 32 years, flee to England with his mistress, and retire upon the urging of Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) Upon retiring, Spear remarked, he's quoted to say, and his critics were criticizing him, you've wasted your career, you were so gifted. And Spear said, dearly have I loved the work in which I was engaged. I've been helped to see that beyond the clouds that were around about me, there was a living, guiding, intelligent, beneficent purpose, the elevation, regeneration, 
and redemption of the inhabitants of earth. Spear died in 1887. This is my new favorite story <laughs> from the universalist side of our history. It's just remarkable. A mechanized messiah made out of a dining room table and some magnets. What is not to love about this? The story of Spear is not the only story like it from this time period. With the rise of spiritualism or groups that thought the world was coming to an end at any second such as the Millerites or the Russellites, the predecessors of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Stories like these were a dime a dozen, but this one speaks directly to us as the modern descendants of the Universalists. What we can learn from the story is that for Spear, he had an impactful conversion experience in his life that to us looks very bizarre. Don't get me wrong, I'm not defending such a belief in a mechanical messiah, But for Spear, that was his reality. Now, I'm not qualified to diagnose him posthumously, though it's pretty clear to me something drastic changed his life. But what this story highlights for me is the reality that Spear was at once a brilliant preacher, abolitionist, and believer in the universalist message. But he also became someone that breached the trust of his colleagues, his friends, his family, and his followers. Imagine the disappointment of all those people who watched someone they loved violate every boundary, every understanding between them, and the pursuit of a dining room table messiah. Imagine even more the disappointment of his followers when they realized the mechanical God did not and would not come to life. The story for me is all about trust, spiritual trust. This whole month we've been exploring trust. What does it mean? Trust that allows us to share our gifts in community. Trust that empowers us to be vulnerable enough to find our place. And today, a trust that is front and center in churches more than anything. Spiritual trust. Religious trust. A trust that encroaches upon our innermost selves. That deep cavern inside that holds within our beliefs about life and the universe. That place within where we lay awake at night and are suddenly struck with the realization of our own mortality. What does it mean? What does any of this mean, if anything? It's that place where we discover a feeling that can only be described as awe when struck by the beauty of the mountains, the perpetual youth of the forests, or whatever it is in the natural world that leaves us speechless. It is a part of us that, in theory, is allowed to thrive in churches, to shine with unconstrained beauty. But we know that within ourselves, in that realm that some call the spiritual, the philosophical, or the essence of our humanity, there are caverns yet that hold within them deep sadness, disappointment, and grief. It is a lot to ask anyone knowing this to show up here on Sunday morning and allow that part of their life to be shared freely, openly, and with immediate trust that it will be valued, nurtured, and dignified. It is a lot to ask if we've arrived here from religious traditions that, while not preaching about a dining room table Messiah, instead preached hate and indignity. Religious traditions that told us we were going to hell, a hell that doesn't exist, because of who we love, what we believe, or 
how we've chosen to live our lives. Religious traditions that we see in the national spotlight confusing the common good with distorted ethics. It is hard to overcome those wounds and to trust religion again. But here is a courageous act, being here this morning. It is a good first step, and it is an exercise in trusting again. Even if we come here from a bad experience, good experience, or no religious experience, I would suspect it's hard to trust anyone or anything in 2019 America. I need not give you examples, but ask yourself, how much do you trust our institutions, such as the government, these days? When trust has been eroded, it is easy to remember that moment and to dwell in it and to not let go of that disappointment, even more so when that trust impacts the most vulnerable parts of our identities. As a people gathering under the umbrella that is Unitarian Universalism, I wholeheartedly believe we have the tools we need to repair spiritual, philosophical, ethical trust in our lives and the lives of those around us. And we don't have to look far. Our seven principles and six sources of Unitarian Universalism provide us a framework with which to recognize times in our lives when spiritual trust was violated, a framework to recognize that hurt and begin to heal from it, a framework to assess what parts of religion are life-giving and life-affirming and which are destructive, a framework on which to unite as a diverse religious people sharing a common venture. The fourth principle of Unitarian Universalism, <clears throat> which they're on the cover of your order of service, the fourth principle, which I often call the anchor or keystone principle, states the following. We affirm and promote a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. It is a free search because we have the liberty to believe in one God, no God, many gods, maybe even a goddess, or remain unsure. It is free because we have the liberty to believe in an afterlife or just this life, to believe in angels, in saints, in meditation, in mindfulness, in prayer, and reflection. It is free because we have the liberty to lift up and celebrate any religious or ethical belief that is life-affirming and life-giving. But that word responsible is in there, too. Needless to say, a free and responsible search for truth will not be affirming any dining room table mechanical messiahs anytime soon. With our freedom, we do indeed have responsibility. A responsibility that calls us to treat other religious traditions with mutual respect should we find that those beliefs are life-affirming. To treat the beliefs we discover with sincerity and integrity and not to treat them like we are at a religious buffet. We are not a religion that says, I'll have a scoop of atonement with my karma today and a side of Yahweh. We just don't do that. <laughs> Though we have all heard it when people find out who we are. You can believe anything and pick from anything in Unitarian Universalism. Have a little bit of God there, a little Jesus there, and some Krishna on the side as well. The framework is right there for all of us. The fourth principle, that free and responsible search for truth but it's also in our six sources. If you haven't read the six sources, they're right in the first couple pages of that gray hymnal. We call ourselves a religious tradition, living tradition, because we are continually informed by these sources. My colleague, the Reverend Kathleen Rowlands, summarizes them this way. She says, 
Throughout history, we have moved to the rhythms of mystery and wonder, prophecy, wisdom, teachings, ancient and modern, and nature herself. But when we list out those sources, we end it with this. Grateful for the religious pluralism which enriches and ennobles our faith, we are inspired to deepen our understanding and expand our vision. As free congregations, we enter into this covenant, promising one another our mutual trust and support. The values we unite behind are our framework for trust and support in community. They call us to this free religion and encourage us to responsibly carve out a path in the company of fellow seekers and travelers. They also call us to be discerning and, yes, to make decisions about what is or isn't authentically Unitarian Universalist. Hellfire and brimstone? Not a chance. Our goal is to squash the fires of hell and to put them out. An angry God or gods won't happen in Unitarian Universalism. Should you discover God in our churches and communities, may it be loving and supporting. Nihilism in the face of injustice and suffering. Those opinions can take a hike because justice and suffering, we are called to respond to those every single day of our lives. A mechanical Messiah that will usher in a new age, I don't think that will ever happen. The Unitarian minister, William Ellery Channing, who is credited as being the father of Unitarianism in America, delivered a sermon in 1819 that officially claimed the name Unitarian and said, yes, we are our own tradition. Yes, we are heretics, and we're proud of it. Of interest to us in this moment, that three-hour sermon was based on one single tiny piece of Christian scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. I can think of no better way to sum up our seven principles and six sources. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. And I can think of no better way to illustrate that here in Unitarian Universalism, we are invited to trust ourselves spiritually and ethically and to trust one another as well. To prove all things and hold fast that which is good, be it ancient or modern, secular or religious, our own intuition or the wisdom of the ages. And so may we all enter even more deeply into a trust that nurtures our individual lives and the lives of our community. This is our call. This is the trust we are invited to hold. Blessed be. Amen.